Hello, friends. Um, before we get on with the show, we wanted to inform you that we um, edited the audio of the podcast from Tuesday. Daphne, is that Tuesday that I'm talking about? I think so. Okay. Actually, uh, yeah, it's Tuesday. On, on, on Tuesday, where we talked about weight to casein ratio, um, more information has been brought to our attention. We wanted to include it in the episode, so we went uh, back and edited uh, some of the explanation for that answer. Feel free to check it out. And uh, again, thank you to the audience member who have brought this up to our attention. Um, yeah, now on with the show. This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast, Daphna. Thursday. Let's go. You ready? We're almost there. We're almost there. We're a few more days closer to the exam. <laughs> the pressure is on. Hmm. Um, I completely lost track of where we're at. So, um... <laughs> question 26. Zeroes. We're doing question 26. Okay. <laughs> All right, Daphna. So question 26. Thank you for, for the pointer. Which of the following statements about short bowel syndrome is false? Choice A, loss of the ileocecal valve may lead to diarrhea as a result of reflux of bacteria from the colon. Choice B, resection of the colon can result in dehydration and loss of electrolytes. Choice C, resection of the jejunum leads to malabsorption of protein, fat, and carbohydrate. Choice D, steatorrhea, can result from complete jejunal resection along with fat-soluble vitamin and zinc deficiencies. And choice E, the ileum can compensate for the absorptive capacity of the jejunum. Okay, this is a tough question. So um, I know that the ileocecal valve is very important. You know, we had a baby in our unit once who... Um, lost basically only the ileocecal valve and we could not refeed that kid even though the baby had tons of of bowel left so um that's correct um and the valve helps um keep uh bacteria in the colon um okay resection of the colon can result in dehydration and loss of electrolytes. Um, that's true. So I think of the small intestine as really getting all of the nutritional components and then um, the colon uh, with like the water and electrolytes. Um, so that makes C true also. Then D is statoria can result from complete jejunal resection. So um, that is... Tricky. Tricky, right? Because the, <laughs> the jejunum does help with fat um, uh, reabsorption, um, but the fat-soluble vitamins and zinc, I, I mean, I really think of that really later or um, uh, in the ileum. So I'm going to say that D is false. And then the ileum can compensate for the absorptive capacity of the jejunum. So because the ileum does some of the same jobs as the jejunum, if something passes through, um, then the, the, the ileum can, can, can capture that. So yeah, I say D. Yeah, you're right. You, you nailed it. I think this was uh, the key there was to identify that in statement D, 
steatorrhea can result from complete jejunal resection along with fat-soluble vitamin and zinc deficiency to understand that it was not jejunal, but the ileum. So the ileum is responsible for the absorption of fat-soluble vitamins and zinc. And the ileum has the ability to compensate for some of the function of the jejunum. And so this is where it can get all mushed up in your head where, mm -hmm. yeah, the ileum can compensate um, and it has the role of absorbing fat-soluble vitamins and zinc, and zinc. But that statement was in the end not correct. So the jejunum is responsible for the absorption of protein, of fat, and carbohydrate in addition to iron, calcium, and, mag and magnesium. This is also where it gets tricky is because it's responsible for the absorption of fat. And in mm -hmm. this question, it's, it's just, I mean, maybe it's just me and my little dyslexia, but along with fat dash to the line, soluble vitamin. <laughs> so if you read quickly, it could just appear as uh, the jejunal resection along with fat. And you're like, Ooh, fat jejunum. Yes. Right. But no, you have to complete, please read the sentence all the way through. For sure. Uh, for sure. The ileum is responsible for the uptake of vitamin B12 for the release of neurologically important hormones and the absorption of bile salts, fats, fat-soluble vitamins, and zinc. The ileocecal valve, as you mentioned, is crucial for the regulation of transit time and for the prevention of colonic bacteria entering, basically refluxing back into the small intestine from the, the colon. And obviously the colon, as you probably all know, is responsible for water and electrolyte reabsorption. And so it makes sense that resection of the colon will result in dehydration and loss of electrolytes because that's really the main job of, of the colon, really to reabsorb water and, and secondarily through that reabsorption of water, uh, having some electrolyte reabsorption. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So the jejunum is responsible for some fat absorption. And as we said, um, the ileum, fat-soluble vitamins and zinc, and the ileum can compensate for the jejunum. So, so yeah, good job. Okay, question 47. Um, this is a very good question. I feel like this could, could be on the test. I'm just saying. Uh, which hormone, and again, I have no, <laughs> I have no say. No, but there's there's some some of these questions you're like this is like super testable. Right. There's not like it's not too confusing. It's like That's damn, right. like yeah. <laughs> you just question answer. All right. Which hormone plays the biggest role in placental regulation of fetal nutrient supply? Is it A growth hormone, B insulin-like growth factor, C placental lactogen, or D thyroid hormone? It's a it's a it's not an easy question uh, until you know it. Then it's easy. But. Um, yeah, so I think to me, that question is very tricky because growth hormone and thyroid hormone are not super involved in, in fetal uh, growth, but mostly in postnatal growth. So then I was left with insulin-like growth factor and placental lactogen. And you know that insulin-like growth factors is somehow mm -hmm. important for fetal slash placental growth. Um, <laughs> but which one plays the biggest role? Um yeah, that's that's uh, that's a difficult that's a difficult question. Um, yeah, I knew the answer. I had I remembered that that topic. So the the placental lactogen is the is the most plays the most important role in the growth and development of the fetus. So my answer was C, uh, placental lactogen. Yeah, that's the right answer. Um, placental lactogen is probably the the predominant um, regulator of growth and development of the fetus. And it coordinates metabolic and nutrient supplies from uh, basically the placenta to the developing fetus. 
And the reason it does that, I think it's worth discussing. Yeah, that's so cool. Go ahead. What placental lactogen does is that it creates a state of insulin resistance, um, which then subsequently increases glucose and lipid concentrations to promote growth in the fetus. Um, but it also causes, you know, increased insulin. And so if you think about that for a second, um, insulin promotes fetal growth, adiposity, and decreased uh, protein breakdown. And so this kind of makes sense. Like the large for gestational age baby who's born to an infant or who is an infant of a diabetic mother, it's the high insulin coupled with having that substrate of high glucose, um, which leads to all of this extra growth. So placental lactogen creates insulin resistance, um, which increases the glucose and increases the insulin, which um, provides excellent substrates for, for growth. But this tr question is tricky because placental lactogen is regulated by insulin-like growth factors one and two. Um, and so I think that's where people could get confused. Insulin-like insulin -like growth factors are related um, to placental lactogen, but it's um, the probably the most important, plays the most important role in terms of growth and development. And then the other answer is growth hormone and thyroid uh, hormone are absolutely crucial um, to postnatal growth. Um, and they play a role in fetal growth, but not nearly at the same magnitude. Um, the only other things I wanted to mention about fetal uh, growth um, and nutrients um, was that I think this is another thing that comes up a lot. Glucose comes across the placenta in facilitated diffusion um, and amino acids cross the placenta via active transport. So amino acids, active transport. I just wanted to make sure we touched on those. And we'll go over um, the endocrine um, mm -hmm. the endocrine system where we will talk about what actually crosses the placenta mm -hmm. and what doesn't cross the placenta, I guess. Um, I think I think maybe maybe we save that for the maybe we save that. I mean, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. I'm not going to confuse everybody. Let's let's leave it at that. <laughs> Let me give you a mnemonic to remember. This is how I remember this question. Can I can mm -hmm. I share that with the audience? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is a very European uh, mnemonic. Okay, so if you're a football club, like if you're a soccer club in mm -hmm. in Europe, in order to grow, you need to reach the top divisions, right? This is how you grow. As a club, you can be in lower divisions, but if you reach the top division, then that's it. You, you're you're in the big leagues. The best tournament in Europe is the British Premier League. Mm, PL. Yeah. So <laughs> if you want to know, like, okay, so the most important factor for fetal growth is PL because it's like the Premier League. It's the best. It's the top. This is what you want. <laughs> and this is how I remember it. Okay. Uh, yeah, listen. <laughs> I'll take it. People have asked. People have asked. We share. We share. You take it. You leave it. No offense on our end. Yeah, if it um, works for you, great. Whatever works, man. Whatever works. Okay. I don't know why I'm so embarrassed about my mnemonics, but that's okay. <laughs> All right. So this was. So let's do question forty-nine. Okay. Question forty-nine. Daphna, which of the following is thought to play a role in brain and retinal development? Linolenic acid, choice A. Long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, choice C. Short and medium chain triglycerides, choice D. Stearic acid. I hope I pronounced this correctly. 
guessing. Yeah. Um, so I know some things about linolenic acid, um, because it, (laughs) because I know that it is one of the essential fatty acids. So, um, I know that that's important, but that's not what this question is asking. Um, and then I think about which are the fats, um, are healthy, healthy fats, omega-6, omega-3 that, um, are important in brain, um, and retinal development. And so those are, um, long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, the really healthy fats. So the answer is B. Yeah, that's correct. Um, yeah, I think you, you said everything I was going to say. Long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, such as omega-6 and omega-3. I think once you um, understand that these are the omega-3, omega-6, you're like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. Then you're like, like, it makes sense. Yeah, of course. Because <laughs> that has permeated into uh, society and public that's knowledge right. already. So are believed to be important in both brain and retinal development. Linolenic and linoleic acids are, like you said, essential fatty acids. Stearic acid is also a fatty acid, but is not considered to be essential. Um, These fatty acids and short and medium chain triglycerides have uh, not been associated with either brain or retinal development. And so this is how you sort of were able to pinpoint the... um, What is it? The PUFAs, the the LC PUFAs. Some people have like the the long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids. Yeah, the LC PUFAs. The LC PUFAs. (laughs) Um, I wanted to mention just, see, we have, we've been talking a lot about the fatty acids, but we didn't really talk about what fatty acid deficiency looks like. And I think that bears mention. Um, so if you have essential fatty acid deficiency, that means you're not getting enough lenolenic or linoleic acids, um, dermatitis, alopecia, thrombocytopenia, and failure to thrive. So I think that is like a pretty good question. And the other thing that comes up a lot um, is it can be diagnosed, though we're not really using it that much in clinical practice, but can diagnosed uh, by the Holman ratio or the triene to tetraene ratio. Um, so if you if it's greater than 0.2, um, then you have an essential fatty acid deficiency. Yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention that is also super testable is if they gave you a vignette where a baby is born and the administration of um, mm-hmm. of fatty acids, of lipids, delayed. is delayed by right. a few days, right? And it doesn't take much. Um, it, it's a delay in uh, administration of fatty acids by like three to seven days. Like if mm-hmm. for the first week, for some reason, you haven't given these kids any lipid, they can start developing uh, essential uh, fatty acid deficiency. Uh, so yeah, and then as you said, the the triene to tetratriene ratio, um, and it's supposed to be above 0.2. I mean, to less than point, should be yeah, less I'm, than 0.2. It should be less than 0.2. I meant it's supposed to be above 0.2 to make the diagnosis of mm-hmm. fatty acid deficiency. Sorry about that. Yeah, the the other, I think, interesting point is even having like um, one gram per kilo of lipids would theoretically be enough to stave off fatty acid deficiency, but you need something. You need something. That's right. Okay. Question. Um, Oh. Yeah, go ahead. Question 50. Uh Uh, Which of the following are contraindications to breastfeeding in the United States? A, known maternal um, CMV infection. B, herpes simplex viral lesion on the breast. C, hepatitis C. D, uh, HIV. E, mastitis. F, uh, a PPD uh, that is positive with a chest radiograph that is negative. And then these get tricky. So answer G. Yeah, don't bother. I mean, I guess... (laughs) 
I guess I think we can review from here. Yeah, I mean, basically, there's not it's not one single correct answer. It could be a combination, and I think it's too confusing if we do like A B C D A B D mm-hmm. I B. Like, we'll just figure out which one are correct and which one are not. Um, so I think this question is tricky because mm-hmm. of that because it's not if there was no combination choices. We know HIV is is the one indication in the United States where you don't allow breastfeeding. We know that it's something where the country is important because we know that, for example, in Africa, where um, the babies may not have access to um, other forms of milk, then you do your risk to benefit ratio and breastfeeding, then the risk, the benefits of breastfeeding then outweigh the risks of transmission. But anyway, in the US, HIV is considered an absolute contraindication to breastfeeding. So that's easy. But because D is in all these combination choices, you have to know what about the other ones. Um, hepatitis C um, is not a contraindication to breastfeeding. I don't know. Um, I, I mean, you look at the Red Book. We've had many patients that were hepatitis C positive, and I, I can recall from my own clinical practice that that has not been an obstacle when we looked it up. Mastitis is another one where that's pediatric boards. Like, just just go back to <laughs> residency. That's the typical question they love to ask. That mastitis is not a contraindication to uh, continuing breastfeeding. Um, choice F, which is the tuberculosis one. We spoke about that in the infectious disease section. They're describing a PPD positive, but it's a negative chest radiograph. So that's latent TB, that's routine care, nothing really to do. So definitely don't stop breastfeeding. The other two, the CMV and the herpes are tricky mm-hmm. because it's like known maternal CMV. And we know that it, CMV could go in the, in the breast milk and so on and so forth. But even though you can have a discussion about the risk benefit of breastfeeding on CMV, um, I wouldn't say that CMV is a definite contraindication. It's not like it may be a relative contraindication, but it's not like absolutely not. However, because of the symptomatology of herpes, which is frightening, if you do have active herpes with lesions on the breast where uh, the baby is going to nipple, that is a contraindication too. So my, my choices were B and D, which eventually turned out to be choice I, I think. That combination is one of them. Yeah, that's, that's correct. So let's go over kind of the absolute contraindications in, at least for the, the United States. So a herpes simplex viral lesion on the breast is a contraindication to breastfeeding because of the possibility of passage of HSV. Um, a mother with known HIV is a contraindication to breastfeeding again here in the United States because of the concern for passage of infection. Um, active TB. So if they had said a PPD positive chest radiograph uh, positive, that'd be a baby, that would be a dyad that we would have to work up. And if mom was found to have active TB um, with, for example, if mom had symptoms, that would be a contraindication to breastfeeding. And then um, actually breast abscess is is sometimes felt to be a relative contraindication to breastfeeding, um, but not mastitis. So it may gross you out, but <laughs> feed, through, feed through the mastitis and infect, and sometimes it can help with the mastitis. Um, and then like you said, known CMV is kind of a relative contraindication to breastfeeding. Lots of units are doing freezing of the breast milk to combat CMV. Um, but in general, most units um, may continue breastfeeding, but with really high um, you know, clinical awareness that there could be a risk of CMV transmission. But for the boards, HSV, HIV, active TB, 
Okay. Okay. I think that's it for us today, correct? Mm. I don't know. You run the show. I keep I keep trying to like take over the one the, more. the, the reins. One more. Okay. <laughs> okay, Daphne, question 60. You're giving a lecture to medical students about the amino acid requirements for neonate. One student asks you about essential amino acids. All of the following are essential amino acids except like the first two thirds of this stem were useless. Like mm-hmm. you could have, <laughs> I like how they try to build it up. Like you're, you're on the, under pressure. You're in the medical school and the student raises his hand and okay. Which one is not an essential amino acid? Choice A, aspartate. Choice B, leucine. Choice, choice C, lysine. Choice D, methionine. Choice E, phenylalanine. Okay. I remember from medical school the mnemonic Private Tim Hall. But you still have to remember what, what which amino acids are in there. Um, but anyways, I know that there are not many, let's say, aspartate is not an essential amino acids. I, I think of, um, I know that arginine is the A in, in Private Tim Hall. Arginine is such a big component of our protein um, uh metabolism that I can remember that arginine is in all of those protein pathways. Um, so, hey, aspartate. Okay, good. I thought you were going to go into the Krebs cycle and I was like, oh, no. no I'm not going to go into it, but I know it's in there. I know it's that in there. arginine oh, is in there. Let's just, let's just leave it at that, you know? Um, I did the same thing. I actually used that same mnemonic from, I think it was the MCAT that I have that mm. I first learned that, that stuff. But it's wrong. I mean, it's correct. Aspartate is not an essential amino acid, but it's wrong. You shouldn't use that that mnemonic, and we'll go into that uh, one in one second. So amino acids play a crucial role as precursors for both protein, neurotransmitters, and as transport molecule and in cell signaling. Um, they can be divided into two categories, right? Essential or non-essential, uh, depending on whether they are completely derived from the diet or that they can be produced endogenous, endogen, endogenously. 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 Ah. Lord. Um, so the problem is that classically, isoleucine, leucine, valine, lysine, methionine, phenylalanine, threonine, tryptophan, and histidine are considered essential amino acids for adults. And those are the ones you find in your private Tim Hall mm-hmm. type of mnemonic. However, several metabolic processes are not fully developed in the infant. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the following amino acids are con- are conditionally essential in the infant. And these are arginine, glutamine, glycine, proline, taurine, and tyrosine. So the big thing about this question is that you need to remember the one specific to the neonate. So again, these were arginine, glutamine, glycine, proline, taurine, tyrosine. Yeah, at that point, it's almost easier to remember which ones are non-essential. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, cysteine was um, historically considered a conditionally essential amino acid, but there's recent studies that have shown that it's, um, it is not the case for babies that are being fed enterally. Um, aspartate is, non, is a non-essential amino acid, and um, aspartate plays a key function in the transamination and in the urea cycle. And it has a crucial a crucial role in the purine and pyrimidine synthesis, which depends on the donation of its amino group. 
which is that that end portion of um, of the amino acid. In addition, aspartate is an excitatory neurotransmitter and is involved in gluconeogenesis. I have a headache just already. <laughs> just thinking <laughs> about it. <laughs> okay, that's it. Okay. We'll have to let our brains rest after that one. It's no problem. See you tomorrow, Daphne. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.